Second Peter doesn't get preached a lot from Christian pulpits, at least not the pulpits that uh, most of us spend time listening to. It's pretty harsh and polemical at times, kind of dark. <laughs> it's speaking to situations that might seem foreign to us. So maybe that alone is good enough reason to spend three weeks looking at this book a little closer. There might be some gems in here that we've been missing. And maybe we can find a better context to help us better appreciate the harsher parts. So before I get into the opening chapter, a word about the book in general. The author of this letter is widely disputed. Few scholars attribute the whole letter to the Apostle Peter. Some parts of it make sense as potentially coming from Peter, others not so much. The prevailing view is that this is a fairly general letter written in Peter's name to a whole group of churches, mostly churches in the Hellenized Jewish communities throughout the diaspora. Now, that's a fancy way of saying churches made up of Jews far, far away from Jerusalem, far away geographically, but also far away in culture, language, and religious values. They lived all around the Roman Empire in cities and communities dominated by Greek and Roman ways of thinking and living. Now you can imagine some of the possible worries that the pillars of the church back in Jerusalem, like St. Peter, might have had about these groups of young Jesus followers planting churches around Asia Minor and Greece. In the face of cultural pressures and persecution and the tendency to conform to whatever the dominant society is, and considering how new this Jesus movement was, and how the first Gospels of Jesus had only recently been written and circulated and were not yet considered scripture, it's not hard to imagine that these churches and their leaders were concerned about them getting off track morally and ethically, losing trust in Jesus as Lord. And some of these churches were probably starting to look like some pseudo-Jewish, pseudo-Greek, new religious community that didn't look a lot like Jesus. Apparently, there were churches and leaders who openly behaved in ways that abused their power, accumulated and flaunted their wealth, and sexually exploited others. They were living the values of the empire. So the thrust of this letter written in Peter's name, with his weight behind it, is to call out the false teachers leading them astray and to bring the churches back to Jesus of Nazareth as a reliable witness who was God's anointed son at the center of their life and faith and Lord of all things. There's the letter in a nutshell. So in chapter 1, the author begins with one of the most winsome invitations to a faith-filled life in Jesus. He'll get nasty and polemical in chapter 2. 
And we'll slog our way through that next Sunday. But here, the gospel is presented in its shining glory. Just in case any of those hearing this letter have been tempted to give up on Jesus and need a word of encouragement or motivation to stay the course and not follow some alternate religious path, the letter writer hands it to him, to them in chapter 1. First, a warm greeting to those who have received a faith as equally honorable as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May peace and grace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then these glorious words, God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. He has given us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from corruption and participate in the divine nature. In other words, God has come not with a list of demands to make you earn your worth. God has come with precious and great promises. You already have all you need for life and godliness given to you by God's hands. That expression of God's generosity and kindness is the basis on which our faith is built. It's beautiful. And then comes a list of virtues. Now, a virtue list is a literary form that shows up several times in Scripture and, interestingly, in other ancient Greek and Roman literature. Virtues are listed in a sequence each one being added to the one preceding it so that you end up with kind of a stack of virtues. But I noticed something in this stack of virtues that stood out to me. And it was how the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, translates the verb at the front of the list. They use the word support as in support your faith with excellence and excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and so forth. So many other translations, including the NIV and King James and others, use the simple word add, as in add to your faith excellence and to excellence knowledge and to knowledge self-control, etc. So I dove into the Greek to find out what was up with that. And the verb, which is epikoregeo, means more than simply adding on, like icing on the cake. It has a much richer impact, that of providing lavishly or furnishing all that is needed to accomplish something. That's no optional sort of add-on that we could do with or without, where each layer adds another nice element to the whole. You know, when a chef makes a layer cake or a parfait, each layer added to the top makes it more interesting. But they could stop anywhere, even with two layers, and it could still be eaten and be tasty. 
This is not the kind of addition going on in 2 Peter 1.5. It's not icing on the cake. It's furnishing the essentials. It's critical support structure. It is something needed to undergird what lies above it in the stack. So each named virtue is not something that we slap on top. No, with effort and intentionality, we work it in under the structure in order to better support and accomplish what lies on top of it. So let's look again at the virtue list from that vantage point and see if we can stack it up differently. Faith is what needs support. Our trust in God is exposed to the elements in a way. By itself, it's fragile. It can be misdirected. It can be misused to the point of harm. It can even fall apart and disintegrate. And I think that's exactly what the epistle writer feared was happening in these scattered churches who were fending for themselves against the forces of the empire. So he writes, beginning in verse 5, make every effort to support your faith with excellence. Don't settle for the easy way forward. Don't just go with the flow. Strive for what is good and excellent and worthwhile. And support excellence with knowledge. Learn the truth about Jesus. Excellence is hollow if you don't know what Jesus stood for when he lived among us. Know how Jesus fits into the larger story of God. Don't guess at it or let your gut decide. Listen and learn from reliable witnesses. Knowledge. And support knowledge with self-control. A life of faith requires respect and love for the self, but don't let your knowledge make you full of yourself. Always yield to the greater good of God's bigger shalom project, because the gospel is for us, but it's bigger than us. And support self-control with endurance. Faith rarely gives instant results. Reigning in the self, self-control can be tiring work. Patience is needed. God's timing is not our timing all the time. Trust that God's ark is bending toward justice, even when that ark is long. And support endurance with godliness. Now, godliness is a little tricky. We've been programmed to think that we create godliness by doing good, by acting like God. But godliness does not mean moral perfection. It means being close to God. We can cultivate a devotional stance toward God. There are tried and true practices for a life of devotion to God and support godliness with mutual affection. 
affection toward God and toward others is a key to having a godly disposition. It's like spiritual warmth, wanting to be like God and others. And support mutual affection with love. Love is more than warmth. It's a rugged commitment to orient ourselves toward another. Toward God, toward others, toward ourselves. Willingness to set aside personal or self-oriented drives in order to invest in the well-being of the larger whole of which we are part. It's not self-neglect. No, love seeks the good of all. And it concludes this list of virtues. Now see how these are stacked exactly opposite? Love is most definitely not the icing on the cake. It's not the maraschino cherry on top of the parfait. It's the foundation for a life of faith. This fragile and tender thing that we call faith can not only survive, but thrive when it's built on a foundation of love that supports affection, that supports godliness, which supports endurance, which undergirds self-control, which supports knowledge, which is the basis for excellence, which results in a sturdy faith that can weather the storm. And remember this, we have already been given by the gracious and generous hand of God everything needed for life and godliness. It is ours to make every effort to receive this gift from God's hands and put it into use for the building up of faith. Now, obviously, our world is a very different one than the Greek and Roman-influenced first-century Mediterranean culture. But maybe not so different at the core. There are still forces in society today that attempt to push us away from a Jesus-centered faith. Our faith on its own is just as fragile today as the early Christians who were trying to find their way. We have something important to learn, I believe, from 2 Peter. God is good. God is generous. It's not up to us to scrounge up the resources for faith. We've been given them. Now, let us open our hands, our lives, our bodies, our whole beings, and offer them in the service of God whom we know in Jesus. 
and let us confess our shortcomings. Will you join me in the confession printed in the bulletin or on the screen? God of love and patience, we confess we are sometimes indifferent to your lavish gifts. We are burdened by believing we must earn your love. Forgive our failure to freely receive from you. We acknowledge we already have from you all we need for a life of reverence and gratefulness. Forgive our ingratitude and self-obsession. The God of endless love and patience forgives us and continues to hold open hands toward us, offering love and life and all we need to become the people God created us to be. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God.